people today often look for in religion and spiritual practice. Not that there's anything wrong with that. I'm all for finding serenity and feelings of wholeness and that kind of peace in our religion, our faith, and our spiritual practice. That's wonderful. But let's be clear. When Jesus spoke of peace and establishing peace on earth, that's not the kind of peace he was talking about. Nor do I think he was talking about giving us a kind of psychological relief, a peace of mind, as it were, from believing we're no longer, let me take this off because actually I'm allowed to <laughs> when I'm standing up here talking. Um, Jesus wasn't talking about a kind of psychological relief or a kind of peace of mind that comes from believing that we're no longer doomed to hell or under the wrath of God or you know, get to go to heaven when we die. Nowhere in the Gospels do we find Jesus saying, take peace because I've come to die on the cross for your sins so that you don't have to go to hell and you can go to heaven. Nowhere does he say anything even remotely close to that. That's not the kind of peace he brought. Instead, one of the first inclinations we get as to Jesus's kind of peace comes to us in the words of the angels that announced his birth to the shepherds, keeping watch over their sheep by night in the fields. The angels said, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace, peace among those whom he favors. And whom did the Lord favor? Well, shepherds who were among the underclass of society, among those who were, quote, low-born. It was these that the birth of the Christ child was announced to. It wasn't announced to the kings and the priests and the aristocracy and the rich and the powerful. It was announced to mere shepherds, the so-called nobodies. This is the kind of peace Jesus exemplified and symbolized. This is who his peace was really for. Consider also Mary's song, or what we call the Magnificat from Luke chapter 1, which we looked at last week. This song that she sung to her cousin Elizabeth regarding this baby in her womb. She sang, he will scatter the proud. He will scatter the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He will bring down the powerful from their thrones. He will lift up the lowly. He will fill the hungry with good things, and he will send the rich away empty. This was the kind of peace she was looking forward to and the kind of peace she thought her son would bring into the world. It was peace for the poor and powerless first and foremost. And by peace, I mean justice. Peace for the poor and powerless is really just a euphemism for justice, for things like food and clothing and the right to exist. Peace means liberation, means healing, it means holistic well-being, especially for the least of these. That's the kind of peace Jesus brought into the world. He might not have coined the popular slogan, no justice, no peace, but he might as well have because that's what he meant by peace. Peace and justice were synonymous ideas to him and his contemporaries. But this means his peace wasn't so peaceful for the rich and the powerful. <laughs> In order for his peace to be established, the rich and the powerful had to be dethroned, had to be cast down, had to be sent away empty, according to Mary's song. 
And yet I think Jesus's peace was peace for them too, but only if they gave up their greed and their avarice and stopped mistreating the poor and started caring about justice. This was the only path of peace for them. In this way, Jesus's peace, we might say, was a kind of violent peace. It was a kind of violent peace in a way. It, was, it certainly didn't seem so peaceful to the rich and the powerful who were going to you know, be dethroned, cast down, and sent away empty. We don't often think of the parable of the rich man and Lazarus as capturing the true meaning of Christmas. But I think maybe it does. In the parable of the rich man and Lazarus, which can be found in Luke chapter 16, a rich man dies and goes to Hades. But Lazarus, the poor beggar who died, starved to death outside of his front gate, Lazarus goes to heaven. The rich man is given torment, and Lazarus, the poor man, is given peace and eternal bliss. This is interesting. Now, I don't read this parable as literal. It is a parable, after all. Let's be clear about that. But it does seem that Jesus was, I don't know, terrorizing the rich here a little bit for how they treat the poor. He was using a story to harshly criticize them and put the fear of God in them, so to speak. This parable reminds me of the Charles Dickens holiday classic, A Christmas Carol, which can be summed up as supernatural entities terrorizing the rich in the middle of the night until they agreed to to treat the poor justly. Here we see that Jesus's parable and, and Dickens' story captures the true meaning of Christmas, which seems to be the spirits, be they ghosts or angels or gods, are on the side of the poor and have put the wealthy and the powerful on notice. This seems to be the true meaning of Christmas and Jesus's version of peace. And yet, perhaps the most prominent example of Jesus's kind of peace can be found in Matthew 10, where he says, do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword, for I have come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law and one's foes, one's enemies will be members of one's own household, end quote. What does this mean? Well, I think there are multiple good takes. One of them is that to follow Christ, to follow his path of peace and justice, often puts us at odds, even with our closest family members, mothers, our fathers, our sisters, our brothers. And yet to follow him means that we value and prioritize the things of God even more than the approval of our family. And many of us know exactly what this means. Many in this room and many of you on Zoom know exactly what this means. Because we are estranged from certain family members because of our convictions and our beliefs now. Hi, Sophie. <laughs> many of us have experienced a real breakdown in our relationships with our closest of family members because we've taken a stand for peace. Racial peace, economic peace, peace with our LGBTQ brothers and sisters, peace between different faiths and religions. 
for some people in our family, the idea that we can be at peace with God and, and not even be a Christian is a very violent idea because it threatens their entire worldview and their reading of scripture, their sense of certainty and control. For many such folks, nothing is more violent than peace with LGBTQ folks, because again, that's a violent thing to those who are convinced that affirming the gays, so to speak, undermines biblical authority or the sanctity of marriage or erodes the moral foundations of society. Likewise, pursuing peace for people of color today and saying things like Black Lives Matter, that's seen as an incredibly violent thing to many who to many white conservatives, because it threatens the social and economic order that they have benefited from for generations. Likewise, to pursue economic peace and justice for the poor today is often immediately dismissed as socialism or communism and a violent threat to the American way of life, the global economy, or even civilization itself. The bottom line is, for some, nothing is more violent than peace peace with the so-called other. That's what I think Jesus is getting at here in Matthew 10. Jesus's peace was a violent peace sometimes because it not only threatened the status quo and undermined the power structures of our world, but it was violent because it creates division and strife within our closest relationships, like with our family. Jesus's peace creates division and strife between those who are on the side of peace and those who are not. This popular idea today that Jesus, is, that Jesus pro promoted civility and unity above all else, that, that he promoted getting along with everyone as if it was some kind of high moral ground, this just wasn't who he was, nor was it who he called us to be. Discipleship was costly in this way. Taking a stand for justice, fighting for equality, and, and naming evil. This has always been divisive stuff. Now, often when I give talks like this, the question comes up, can I still have a relationship with my family and friends that I really disagree with? And if so, how? How can I build bridges with them? Or maybe even persuade them while maintaining certain boundaries? How could I have peace with them? If, is this even possible? These are really tough questions. And I don't mean to suggest today that we cannot or should not have relationships with those family members. I think we need to be careful not to treat the Bible like a, like a book of ethical rules to be applied universally and always followed without question. Certainly what Jesus says in Matthew 10 about embracing broken relationships about, you know, with our family rings true in a lot of ways. Certainly when Jesus talks about being okay with being severed from our family, you know, that rings true in a lot of ways. But I don't think we should read it as a command from God to alienate our family or our problematic family members and cut off relations with them. Ironically, I think even we progressives sometimes can treat the Bible kind of conservatively when it says things we like. On one hand, we've renounced biblical inerrancy and and this really high view of biblical authority. But on the other hand, we can still be Bible thumpers sometimes when the text suits our purposes. At least it seems to me. 
Now take, for example, the way some focus on Jesus' calling to love our enemies, which is a great passage out of Matthew 5, the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus called us to love our enemies. For many, this means that Jesus' kind of peace means, you know, always practicing tolerance and patience and nonviolent resistance and forgiveness for those who mistreat us and others. And there's certainly circumstances in life where that understanding can and should be applied. And sometimes that's the best, the best path. But the notion that this is always the correct approach, because, quote, that's what Jesus said once, or that's what the Bible says, you know, that's not the right principle to maintain, in my opinion. The Bible says a lot of different things, yes? <laughs> Some things that are a little, or maybe a lot, problematic. When reading and applying the scriptures, we have to think critically and ask ourselves, what's the path of love and peace and justice in unique circumstances, in the unique context that I find myself in? What's the path that is best for my well-being and the well-being of others? And those questions are not always easily answered. And the Bible isn't there to simplify things for us by giving us a set of ethical rules to follow. But rather, I think the Bible invites us into the struggle, to struggle with these questions. I think there are a lot of different ways that we can imagine what it means to love our neighbor or to love our enemy, I mean, and practice Jesus's kind of peace. It's not simple and straightforward. Practicing peace is like practicing a musical instrument, you know? We're really bad at it at first. It's not easy. It takes time to learn how to do it. And even when you get better, you never stop learning. Practicing peace is a struggle, but we do it together. We discuss it, and we answer these tough questions together. This too strikes me as what it means to practice Jesus's kind of peace and the kind of peace we embody here in this community. At this time, before we open it up for discussion, we're gonna share in communion, which is a symbol of Christ's peace for us and him laying his life down for the poor and the powerless, which of course is his peace. I invite you at this time to, if you're willing or able, to stand up and come forward. And I invite you just to take one of these gluten-free crackers off the plate and a cup and go back to your seat, and then we will receive the Lord's Supper together. Um, so please come on down, grab, grab a cracker and a cup, and go back to your seat. Let's receive this now, the body of Christ broken for you. Yeah. The cup of salvation. 
We're figuring this out with kids. Thank you for being patient. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you like the microphone too. It's amazing. She knows how to use the mic already. She's seen me do it for five minutes. Yeah, yeah, okay. So uh, at the end of service, every time that we meet, whether it be online or in person, we open it up for discussion. Uh, we believe it's important uh, as a spiritual community that we discuss things, we challenge each other, we push back, those kinds of things. Yeah, eh, she's all right. Um, so, yeah, does anybody have any questions or any comments about the talk today? You can raise your hand, or if you're online, you can just, guess, just chime in. And I'd also love to hear, if you're willing and able, um, what does practicing peace look like for you <laughs> with your family uh, in the difficult circumstances you might find yourself? Perhaps um, you've gleaned some wisdom about that, and uh, we'd love to share and hear, hear about that, too. Does anybody have anything this morning? Uh, they'd like to share. Oh, cool. Rodney's got, hey, Rodney, yeah. Oh, Mike, I mean, Max, Mike, thank you. <laughs> Mike, Max. Um, I was just thinking while you were talking, uh, I think in my mind, I'm practicing peace when I'm avoiding difficult conversations or not saying anything that, you know, might cause a rise or in me or something. Mm. But I like what you said about how having difficult conversations could be seen as you're working out your peace yeah. or you're working out peace between you and the person you're having the conversation with. And I just had never thought of it that way. So I just cool. to Well, thank you. Yeah, I like what you had to say about how sometimes practicing peace means avoiding those conversations, and especially if they're unsafe conversations, right? And perhaps we're not at a place where we can really, you know, have those conversations and also take care of ourselves. And we need to prioritize our own sense of peace and well-being and create boundaries between us and them whoever they are. Yeah, I literally think that's, that's a really good insight. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, somebody else this morning have something they want to share about practicing peace, the difficulties of practicing peace, especially in our relationships with those family members, those family members. Yeah. All right. Well, it's a good restart. This Sunday, first Sunday back. <laughs> We're working out all the little glitches, I guess. Um, but I want to thank you for being here and participating. Um, we're going to start doing this every week again. Can you believe it? Um, keeping fingers crossed about that, by the way, um, that the world doesn't fall apart again. Um, but yeah, thank you so much for being here. Thank you to all of you who joined us online. Please hang out and chat. Um, but otherwise, we are formally dismissed. Hope you have a great week and we'll see you again next time.